We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah, there you go. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, um, not much more to report on the HSR strike. Um, uh, it continues. Uh, not a lot of uh, wiggle room there. Uh, the city said there's no more money. Uh, the union basically saying if there isn't, there's no sense talking. So that's where we are uh, at this stage. And if you, as you wonder if we, you know, finish up Tuesday and head into Wednesday, if things were to be resolved tomorrow, uh, you know, could they even get stuff ready and up and running for uh, the Grey Cup? How much uh, turnaround time do, is needed there? So uh, plans continue, obviously, for the Grey Cup festivities and uh, in the midst of an HSR strike. Uh, what else we got? This is a very bizarre situation. We've talked about this, including um, a Hamilton company that has come up with a net card that is getting a lot of attention after the death of Adam Johnson. Uh, this was in the U.K., former Pittsburgh Penguin playing there. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard the story, tragic, next slash, and, and the next thing you know, he's gone. Well, now a man has been arrested uh, in the death of uh, Adam Johnson, and uh, whether it was intentional or not, many are looking into uh, what some have described, and I haven't seen the video, as, a, you know, a karate kick sort of uh, move, which um, obviously has consequences when you've got blades on the end of your feet. So uh, we're going to be following that story and see what happens throughout the course of the afternoon. Talk about that as well. Uh, some changes in uh, the beer store we've been seeing in some media. I'm not sure it's changes within the beer store or just in regulations, uh, which will obviously question the validity or give the beer store more competition. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. And in the Israeli-Hamas war, as that continues, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden alluding that uh, they are working very, very uh, hard on a hostage release and alluded that it could be coming. I didn't want to get too much into it, but uh, at least saying that. So hopefully there's some uh, positive news on that as well. All right. Uh, Another jam-packed show coming up. Hope you hang around for it. Franco Terrazano is on the tear again from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. He's the federal director there and um, uh, talking about uh, 400 people attending a climate summit on the taxpayers' dime and $1.5 million for the 400 people to attend the two-week United Nations Summit in Montreal last December. Money well spent, uh, considering the news coming down from the carbon tax, is that uh, it's really not doing what it has been set out to do. So we'll talk about that coming up. Also, uh, you know, many have talked about the Doug Ford government, what it is, what it isn't. Uh, What it's proving to be is one of the most centralist conservative governments that we've seen in years. Uh, And some are talking about uh, the amount of money that they are spending, uh, which is more to the left of the political spectrum than the right, or is he just playing the center, which, of course, has, um, we're Canadians, most of Canadians have been for uh, the last several decades. It's just in the last little while that politics has become, it seems, more polarized. Well, uh, the leaders go off to the extremes, and the, the mainstream sits in the center. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on, and how much they are spending. 
interesting because we constantly hear how much they are cutting, and is that really the case? So we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, the carbon tax, in, in and again, it's it's just, you know, it's amazing the issues that that bring problem uh, to the Prime Minister. And once again, um, playing both sides of the fence and, and, and being divisive and then changing his tune uh, when it comes to the carbon tax. And of course, we're talking about the carve-out, which was given to uh, Atlantic provinces uh, in order to help them with their home heating costs over the course of this winter, a three-year pause that they have. Uh, and of course, the rest of the country is saying, well, what about us? Uh, so many are questioning whether uh, the carbon tax is actually doing what it is set out to do, or it is just a money raiser for uh, a revenue stream for the Liberal Party. So um, uh, again, it's going to be fascinating to see which way this goes on the carbon tax. And um, uh, d- does the prime minister reinstate the carbon tax for Atlantic Canada or give other some sort of bomb bond to the rest of the country uh, who are complaining about the same things and, and yet probably using cleaner forms of energy? You can see how environmentalists are upset about this as well. So we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also. Uh, we're going to talk uh, a little bit uh, with uh, Sylvain Charlevoix, who was from Dalhousie University, and talk about teaching uh, tough lessons to younger generations. What does that mean in the world of food? Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, been hearing a lot of uh, about heat pumps, which uh, of late, which is interesting because sometimes you hear about them, sometimes you don't hear about them, um, and as obviously there's more issues in regard to affordability and carbon taxes. The government has been on a a, a heat pump uh, craze of late. Is this the answer? How do they work? Is it uh, good for Canadians? Is this a viable option? We'll talk about that and try to answer questions which uh, for some reason, have been very, very uh, vague in in the last little while when we talk about heat pumps. If they're so great, why do we all not have one? Uh, we'll have that discussion coming up a little later on. It's always interesting, um, uh, especially during these times of uh, restraint or uh, lack of affordability, inflation, that sort of thing, how much uh, the federal government is spending. And oddly enough, on a climate summit this time, uh, when you know we're hearing again this week that um, uh, the carbon tax, uh, as well as uh, sort of being carved up for the people in Atlantic Canada to get uh, a bit of a three-year break, um, and now is, you know, it has no real um, effect on uh, what we do on reaching our, our targets or anything. And, and again, continues to appear just to be another way to raise funds for uh, the Liberal government. In lieu of all of that, uh, the, the feds spent $1.5 million for 400 people to attend a two-week United Nations summit on uh, climate in Montreal last December. That's according to government records released in response to an order question from a Conservative MP in Kenora. Franco Terrazano with us now, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. Franco, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Uh, before we get to uh, this particular event, uh, it just seems that the, once again, the carbon tax just keeps coming back and it's in the news every week. Obviously, uh, a while ago, the carve out for Atlantic Canada, which just pretty much enraged the rest of the country, asking why not uh, us as well, uh, as well as a report saying this is not helping us hit our targets in any way. Um, where is this going? I mean, it just seems that it's full of holes at this point. 
yeah, there's more holes than Swiss cheese in the carbon tax arguments, isn't there? I mean, look, the Liberal MPs are hoping that they can just barrel through this. They hope the fight is over. The fight is far from over, folks. If you can remember, right, there was a motion in the House of Commons uh, to remove the carbon tax from everyone's home heating bill because, of course, 97% of Canadians use other forms of energy, not furnace oil, to stay warm during the winter months. And, of course, the carbon tax is a huge bill on your natural gas. This year alone, the carbon tax will cost the average family about 300 bucks on their natural gas bill alone. Over the next three years, the carbon tax will cost 1100 bucks on your natural gas bill. So look, the Liberal MPs, they were too chicken to actually stand up for you and to you know, say, Justin Trudeau, we've got to do the right thing and give everyone carbon tax relief this winter. Of course, the carbon tax should just be scrapped altogether because it doesn't reduce emissions. It just eats into people's budgets. But that's all to say that this fight is far from over. The premiers are united. Uh, the conservative NDP are united. And more importantly, the people are united in opposing the carbon tax. What does what what are Canadians realizing about this? Because, again, it doesn't seem to affect targets. Uh, it just increases, uh, you know, uh, unaffordability. How, how what is different now? Why is this finally hitting home with Canadians that this is really just a revenue generator? You know, here's what Canadians are realizing. And it's I'm going to boil it down. It's very simple. The carbon tax is a ripoff. OK, so right now. What is the key economic issue facing most Canadians? Well, the key economic issue is the fact that so many Canadians are worried about the price of gas just to fuel up their car to get to work or to take their kids to hockey practice. So many people are just having anxiety over getting their heating bills this winter. I mean, so many people are even just worried about the price of groceries, right? And you have these liberal MPs, and I'm just going to call them out by party because they're the real ones right now who aren't supporting relief for Canadians. You have these liberal MPs in, in Ottawa who take these six-figure salaries, who give themselves raises every single year, along with the rest of them, uh, that are just unwilling to wake up to the fact that their constituents are struggling, right? So Canadians are realizing that the carbon tax is a ripoff. Inflation reached a 40-year high. The carbon tax makes it more expensive for essentially everything, right? It makes it more expensive to go to the grocery store because the way to get stuff to the grocery store is by truck. The carbon tax makes it more expensive to heat your home. It makes it more expensive to drive your car. And then the big thing here is that we feel like we've been sold a false bill of goods because the carbon tax doesn't even help the environment. So I think it's very clear now where when Canadians are struggling that there is very little support for the carbon tax, or I should say the support for the carbon tax in Canada is plummeting. Uh, and on top of that, people attending a two-week United Nations summit on the taxpayers' uh, bill, $1.5 million to discuss this. It's crazy. Folks, the federal government spent $1.5 bucks so 400 people could go to a two-week climate conference in Montreal. $1.5 million on hotels alone. Oh, by the way, it gets worse because that's not even the full hotel bill. The government couldn't be bothered to, to tally up the whole tab. So at least it cost us $1.5 million to put 400 people up in downtown hotels in Montreal. And oh, by the way, it gets even worse than that because this is not even the full cost of the trip. That's just the hotel bill being $1.5 million. So, you know, we hear these stories all the time of the government living this frivolous life on the taxpayer expense, flying all across the world to go to all of these conferences. And now we find out that even when we host a conference in our own backyard, Montreal, 
we're still paying $1.5 million for hotel bills. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. And, um, yeah, the bill keeps piling up, and uh, so do the cost to you. Uh, Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Hey, thanks for having me on today. All right. Uh, it's funny as uh, we get through a post-pandemic era, the affordability issues, interest rates, what have you. Uh, it's interesting um, how people feel uh, the pinch and what they expect from governments moving forward. And there's a fascinating article in the Globe and Mail, and it's authored by uh, Grady Monroe and Jake Fuss, who are with the Fraser Institute. The headline is Doug Ford's free spending fiscal ways in Ontario are worse than Kathleen Wynne's. Uh, before releasing Ontario's fall fiscal update last Thursday, uh, the finance minister said the Ford government would lay a strong fiscal foundation for future generations. In reality, as a result of the government's spending increases and significant debt accumulation, the province's finances continue to sit on shaky ground. It didn't have to be this way, says the article. Prior to the fall update, things looked somewhat promising. The government expected a small deficit of $1.3 billion uh, for 23-24 before returning to a surplus over the next uh, two years. Conservative surpluses would have been a welcome change, as the province has run deficits every year since 2007 and 8. Except for 21-22, surpluses would have allowed the government to either reduce debt or provide meaningful tax relief for Ontarians. To talk more about all of this, one of the authors... Jake Fuss is with us, senior economist with the Fraser Institute and here now. Jake, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. How do you explain this, Jake? Is this is this one of the most centrist conservative governments we've seen in a long time? Well, what we've seen, you know, really has been a habit of really spending increases under the Ford government. Um, and even when we compare their track record, you know, in, in opposition, the, the progressive conservatives talked a lot about how, you know, the Wynn government was spending a lot of money. But now what we see is the trend really since the Ford government took office um, has been that they've spent even more money than, than the Wynn government actually spent. Um, so when we look on a per capita basis, for instance, we can actually see that the wind government actually spent less um, than the Ford government did um, is, is what they're averaging on a per capita basis. So we've really seen this, you know, increase in spending uh, since the Ford government took office, even above what the predecessors had. Uh, we'll hear opposition or third party, uh, uh, third uh, parties say opposition uh, will say that the, there's cuts, 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 especially to education and healthcare. That's all we see is cuts, cuts, cuts. That's not the case. No, so what we actually see, if we look on a year-over-year basis, for instance, in the budget, um, healthcare spending, for instance, is up about $6 billion compared to last year, for instance. Um, so, you know, we're actually seeing spending increases in several different categories, whether it's education, post-secondary education, um, children's and social services as well. Um, so we are seeing increases in, in spending in a whole host of different sectors. Um, and one of the main issues here is that we're seeing these spending increases then leading to increased deficits over time. Um, you know, like we said, that you know, the Ford government's only balanced the budget once um, since taking office. And that was really due to a, a windfall of revenue that they actually got unexpectedly that year. Um, it wasn't due to any spending restraint or anything like that from the government. Um, so, you know, really what we've seen is spending increases since they took office. Is it been good spending, value for dollar? I mean, we've seen what's happened when we haven't really paid attention to housing for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Now it's come back to bite us. Is this, is this spending that needs to be done? Is this, uh, are we getting value for this? 
I mean, it's a great question. I think ultimately that has to be the determination of Ontarians, um, you know, whether they're getting that value for their tax dollars in terms of the, the programs and services delivered by the Ontario government. Um, but we did some polling earlier this year um, and we found that, you know, roughly half of Canadians, for instance, found that they weren't getting, they were getting poor, very poor value for their tax dollars in exchange for federal, provincial and local services that they were receiving. Um, so it is ultimately up to Canadians and Ontarians to decide um, if they're getting that value for tax dollars. Um, but, you know, some of the, the polling that we did this year indicates that, you know, roughly half of people thought that they weren't exactly getting the, the value that they believe they should be getting from those programs and services. Uh, what about things like infrastructure and such where we've seen if you don't pay now, you're going to pay a lot more later. Uh, you're going to be playing catch up and such. Uh, does, does that weigh in on any of this? So infrastructure uh, can actually be beneficial for the economy over the long term. Um, it can be beneficial for economic growth. Um, however, the issue right now is that a lot of this is being financed by debt um, from Ontario. Um, so it's not necessarily an issue to invest in infrastructure. The issue is how you're really financing it over the long term. Um, you know, so what we're seeing right now is a huge increase in debt um, right now under the Ford government. And ultimately, debt is just a burden that we pass on to the next generation of Canadians. It essentially means we need to increase taxes at a later date to pay for all of today's spending right now. Um, so, you know, infrastructure by itself is, is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing over the long term. Um, but it's really how you're paying for it and how responsible you're being with your spending, too, um, that can weigh into a whole host of conversations here on infrastructure. Are these, is this spending in areas that are of the public interest? In other words, healthcare, housing, things that have been top issues for Canadians or Ontarians? Yeah, so we are seeing, um, you know, increases in all those sectors like healthcare and education in particular. Um, but we're, what we're also seeing is fast increases in debt servicing costs. So this is the money that goes towards interest payments from the government as well. We have rising interest rates right now. Um, and you also have significant debt that's being taken on by the Ontario government at the same time. Um, and when you're spending uh, over $13 billion a year, which is what they're currently spending on just interest payments, that's money that doesn't go towards healthcare or education or tax relief or any other social social services just go straight towards servicing that debt. Um, so that's now one of the fastest growing line items in the budget for the Ontario government is those interest payments that they're making. And like I said, that's money that doesn't go towards programs and services. So, so how much of this, Jake, is to do with rising interest rates, just the the, the bigger cost of, of borrowing more money rather than more or additional spending? So it, it is playing a factor in the interest payments. Those have increased just over about a billion dollars compared to last year. Um, however, the 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 result of, of the spending increases has actually mainly been on the program spending side of things. Um, so for programs and services, the government just introduced a, a new infrastructure bank, for instance. Um, so that is also increasing spending more than than what we're seeing for. Did we lose Jake? Are you there, Jake? I think we've lost Jake. Uh, Jake Fuss with us, senior economist with the Fraser Institute. Uh, and, and basically, <laughs> the headline in the Globe and Mail says it all. Uh, Doug Ford's free spending fiscal ways in Ontario are worse than Kathleen Wynne's. Uh, if you listen to opposition or third party advertising or such, you would certainly get the feeling that, um, uh, the Ford conservatives are cut, 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 whether it's education, whether it's healthcare, what have you. Uh, it turns out that's not the case. They're spending 
spending more. Uh, and, and, and I guess obviously that's in a post pandemic world where we saw lots of weak, weak link in these, uh, industries. Let's bring Jake, Fu, uh, Jake Fuss back, senior economist with the Fraser Institute. Jake, uh, we just got you back for another minute here or so. Sum up, uh, what your thoughts are here. What does the government need to do in order to get this all under control? How do you, how do you decide what to, what to spend on? Yeah, well, I think first it starts with just having an anchor, so something that they can use um, in terms of rules that they're following or guidelines for what they're actually spending the money on. Um, you know, in order to actually have that proper spending restraint, having a long-term plan, they seem to just constantly be revising their plans and just increasing spending at every turn. Um, so in order to actually have a long-term goal, a long-term anchor, um, and have some discipline uh, involved in what you're spending the money on and how much you're spending, I think that's going to be really crucial for the Ford government to, to get back to balanced budgets in the near future. Jake Fuss with us, senior economist with the Fraser Institute, co-author of the latest in the Globe and Mail, Doug Ford's Free Spending Fiscal Ways in Ontario Are Worse Than Kathleen Wins. Uh, thanks so much for the time, Jake. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks very much for having me on. An article in Reuters, uh, Trudeau sends mixed messages on climate policy with Atlantic Carboat, say, environment experts. Uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau sending mixed messages on climate policy, environment experts say, after he diluted his signature carbon tax policy to ease cost of living burdens in a region that has been a stronghold for his party. Experts say Trudeau's carbon pricing scheme, known as the carbon tax, works well and cannot be easily replaced, but after he offered a three-year exemption, on heating oil to appease voters on the Atlantic coast. The policy is under siege. Uh, provincial leaders across Canada are asking for relief for households using natural gas for heating. Even the left-leaning Democrats who support Trudeau's government and parliament have previously defended the carbon tax are calling for the exemption. And to talk more about all of this, Daniel Perry, consultant Summa Strategies, and is here now. Daniel, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Same to you, Scott. Uh, Daniel, always uh, had uh, the Prime Minister had support for this, uh, not only from environmentalists, but it seemed from mainstream Canada. But now it appears that with the carve out for Atlantic Canada, that now the environmentalists are starting uh, to sound alarm. Uh, can you can you continue to divide while playing both sides of the fence here? I think we're seeing in the polling numbers that you simply can't. Uh, Canadians were fine with the carbon price when it was evenly distributed across Canada uh, and the rebate made up for the rural urban divide. But now as they've changed the policy for one area, the rest of Canadians are, are ready to put up a bit of a fight to get the same treatment for themselves. Um, uh, the environment minister said there are not going to be any more carve outs. Kind of, some said alluded to that he meant he would step away if that was the case. Is there an easy way out of this? I mean, can you put Atlantic Canada back in? Do you take the rest of the country out? How do you move forward on this? Uh, that's a real challenge. I don't think the environment minister is going anywhere, despite how quiet he has been broadly on this. Uh, it's been Minister Wilkinson, who's not the environment minister, who's been defending this for the government and has been a loyal soldier in that sense. What the government has to do, I think they're thinking long and hard about this because it's very clear that you can't give one province and one area one thing and then leave the arrest out because they're getting mad. Is this all still about the environment or is it about whether this tax actually solves uh, the problem? Uh, I think we're looking at the environment in the rearview mirror. We're now looking at the political considerations, and that's why the exemption was made for Atlantic Canada, because the prime minister was hearing from his caucus 
that they that the people in their writings were not happy and they were not going to get reelected if they didn't do something. So I think the political uh, political nature of this is shining through where the environmental side of this and the impacts of mitigating uh, greenhouse gas emissions is taking a backseat in an electric vehicle, of course. Um, did do you think the party asked at any time or the insiders said, what happens if we do this? Here's what the fallout will be. How do we handle that? Are those discussions being had? I think they really have now, now, Scott. I think when they made it originally, they were really focused on one region, a region that they desperately need whenever an election might be. Uh, it's an area that they swept in 2015 when they had their first and only majority and one that they want to keep happy. So I think if the focus was very much focused on some electoral seats and not actually the broader impact it would have on Canada. Can uh, the Liberals or the Prime Minister just sell, uh, keep selling, well, we're still better than everybody else on this? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. I think uh, his own environment commissioner has come out against him, saying that uh, in the past years, the only time Canada's met its goals was during uh, the first year of the pandemic. Ever since then, we're not on track to meet them. Uh, and the plan we have now will not meet those goals. So I, I think the world around the prime minister is crumbling and he's trying to figure out a way to kind of restore things. Uh, carbon tax initially brought forward as a way to help change behavior. Obviously, you can't change behavior before uh, technology has delivered it to us. Um, are Canadians questioning whether it works or not? What it, its purpose is? I think Canadians definitely are. They're looking at seeing how much it's costing them, whether it's filling up at the pumps, whether it's paying their gas bill if you're not in Atlantic Canada, uh, or even the cost of groceries, because that's all getting passed down onto them. So I think the frustration is reaching a boiling point. I think it's no longer a conversation about the environment. It's now a conversation about cost of living because that's what it's touching the most on right now. It seems that this government has constantly uh, pitted one side against each other. Uh, either you're all in or you're all out. Either you believe in climate change or you're a climate denier. Are Canadians finally realizing we're not sawed into those two groups, that the majority of Canadians are concerned about climate change? Where the division is, is how we go about fixing it. But it seems that the Trudeau government is still lost in either you're, you're doing it their way or you're, you're a denier. My way or the highway, I think, is a simpler way of putting it. And I think that's where the government's finding itself, especially the environment minister, by saying that there will be no more exemptions under him in the position. I think the government's digging their feet in and they want to have a battle on this. Um, I think if they talk to the average Canadian, um, their willingness to battle this out might go down a little bit because, Scott, if you talk to uh, Canadians, they're pretty mad right now. Daniel Perry with his consultant, Summa Strategies. Uh, Daniel, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. 14 different projects in the city were recognized at Hamilton's 2023 Urban Design and Architecture Awards. The event recognizes and celebrates excellence in design of our urban environment, hi highlighting the very physical growth taking place in Hamilton. Ken Coit is with us, Director of Heritage and Urban Design for the City of Hamilton and here now. Ken, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is very cool. Looking at all the different uh, properties that you've uh, that you've judged here. What is the objective of the Urban Design and Architecture Awards? What are you trying to do? It's to 
build a culture of good design in the city. You know, we have all sorts of planning rules and policies, but sometimes the best thing is just saying what's good and having that conversation and celebrating it in the city just to kind of foster, you know, other people to think about what's good and think about the, the, the built environment. We've been doing it for 20 years now, and there's, you know, there's some landmark buildings. I can think the Art Gallery was one of the first ones that got, a, got an award when it, got it, when it was renovated. Um, so it, it builds that culture of good design. How has the attitude or our attitudes in the city changed over those 20 years when it comes to this sort of thing? I think Hamilton's got a really unique kind of design sense that's developed. And uh, over the past 20 years, you think of King William Street, even some of the ones that uh, won this year, uh, 400 uh, King Street West, which is actually Mission Services, um, a couple at Ancaster, where we're really good at adaptively reusing buildings, keeping that heritage building and adding to it and reusing it and doing it at a, a small or a medium scale that really fits into the city well. Hamilton's, you know, downtown is really known for that. Now, we've really accepted the kind of heritage architecture and taken advantage of it and taking cues from it to make really excellent buildings. Uh, and a lot of changes in attitude over the last several decades, from tearing down and building to looking inward. I remember debates over, you know, can you keep the facade? Can you can you at least keep part of the building? What have you? Uh, those conversations don't seem to be as difficult as they once were. They don't. They're still happening. But yeah, it's part of the culture now that we we take those heritage buildings that are rarities that we're not going to be able to remake or rebuild. And um, we use them and we appreciate them for, for what they are and make sure there's a meaningful discussion when new developments coming to appreciate them as best we can. Uh, and what I'm noticing as I'm going through the pictures of, of uh, some of the award winners, uh, if we're not duplicating what is there in the neighborhood, we're certainly adding on to it in a modern way that um, doesn't certainly replace what was there, but certainly adds the, to the discussion. It's really cool when you take a modern design and attach it to an older structure. Exactly, exactly. There's ones, uh, uh, some of the... Our favorite ones are the laundry, and that's kind of unique because it's on Augusta. It's an infill building, so it's filling in what was a parking spot. I know I parked there many times uh, going to restaurants in Augusta, mm. and the jury from Toronto, many from Toronto, noticed it's like they thought that building was actually just part of the street. It fit in so well, they thought it was an old building. They thought it just belonged there. So that's kind of one of those great contextual I know I'm using architecture words here, but it just fits with the neighborhood well. It, materials make sense, and it just feels like it belongs, and it's been very successful at that. Uh, and, and, and utilizes the idea of a boutique hotel, which is not something you see a lot in Canadian cities or are seeing more of. Great to see it in Hamilton. Oh yeah, it's a welcome use here in Hamilton. We haven't, we've really been kind of missing that. So uh, yeah, it's a very innovative way to use space, very functional space. And it's you know often when you're adaptively reusing a heritage building, you are looking for those kind of flexible spaces, right? You've got a building that was designed for something else. Now you're reusing it for something different, and it's the flexibilities of those spaces that make buildings successful in the long term. What do you have to be concerned of when adding on to a heritage facility or a neighborhood that that has a certain look or feel to it? How do you bring in something new and, and not raise red flags? 
Well, it's scale. So in other words, how, how does a building relate to its neighbors and the materials around? Is it 16 times as big? Is it 20 times as big? If it is bigger, is there, we call them datum lines or podiums where you actually, you know, work the design of the building. So there's some kind of demarcation point of that relates to some of the lower buildings on the street. And then the newer or the taller is set back. You can think of the William Thomas building on uh, James Street North. That's a classic example where an 1850s heritage facade was restored, and it's at the level of the Lister block and the scale of the city that's uh, and the buildings around it. But just set back six or eight meters, a huge tower goes up behind, and you don't really notice that because hmm. the material of the, the, the facade that you're seeing most as you walk along the street is in keeping with what's around it. Lots of debate about housing, uh, infill, urban boundaries, what have you, uh, and and usually, many times, this discussion is uh, is debated on the extremes. But when people talk about infill, they don't necessarily mean taking a neighborhood that was designed for a suburban lifestyle and putting it into a city. There is there are ways to incorporate both of these and 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 make it work, make it fit, make make it so it doesn't look like an elephant in a china shop. Well, yeah, a lot of it. Our, our, our lower city, where we still have our grid of streets, is much more flexible to allow infill to happen. Um, when you get um, the more suburban streets from the 60s, um, it, it gets harder to do. But again, this is where the city has planning that's focusing on our arterials and our LRT corridors and our, main, and our, our, our upper Jameses to add these kind of new buildings. Um, that allow for infill, that get us more units in places that are closer to walking, uh, closer to transit, and closer to the main arteries as well. Ken Coit with us, Director of Heritage and Urban Design for the City of Hamilton. 14 different projects recognized in the City's Urban Design and Architecture Awards this year. When you're down there this weekend enjoying the Grey Cup festivities, take a look around and see what's happened. Ken, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Fascinating column by Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. And we've had on several times in talking about food inflation and, and the business of. But a fascinating article in uh, the Toronto Sun today, and I'm going to spoil it by reading just the last two paragraphs, which I find uh, pretty poignant. For all of us, however, we have an filled with heavily indebted consumers. Our economy is stagnating. Our productivity has been stagnant for some time. If saving becomes less of a priority for many who no longer believe that owning a home or having children is attainable, it could eventually catch up with all of us. Ambition and improving uh, prospects remain the most valuable means for our economy to find a path to growth. We need to support our young people, but above all, our young people must be realistic while believing that better days are ahead to talk more about all of this from Dalhousie, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. Sylvain, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Very well. Apparently better than millennials. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been asked to explain yourself a few times on this, Sylvain? Uh, yes, I've been receiving a few emails, uh, but I'll be honest with you, I've, I've been receiving uh, lots of emails uh, telling me that, well, finally someone is speaking up. But the intent of my of my 
article was not to speak out. It was more about, you know, giving giving our our younger generations a sense of history. I mean, every I, I think all generations have gone through hardships. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's how things are, right? I'm a Gen X. The '80s weren't easy. Uh, early mm-hmm. '80s weren't easy, and uh, and and as as a matter of fact, after that, things got better. So you just need to be a little patient. Uh, it's funny you should say that because I've used uh, an example of the old uh, TV show All in the Family when I remember seeing an episode in the earlier mid-70s when, you know, the world was at war, uh, the environment going, you know, in the toilet and uh, there was no say, nuclear war, all that sort of stuff. And they were having basically the same discussions, which we have pretty much every decade. Why does it seem to be different now? Is it because we've had a longer path of least resistance lately? Well, I just think that as humans, we tend to forget. I mean, uh, we're 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 a resilient species. I mean, basically, and uh, uh, and I think I mean I teach to uh, the younger generations. Uh, we're I'm a father of of four uh, children, and and of course I'm worried about their future as much as anyone else. Uh, but at the same time, uh, nothing is easy in life, and. Uh, I do feel that for a while, things were easy. When I left university back in 1992, the mm-hmm. unemployment rate was over 17%, and interest rates were over 15%. So it's, it's quite difficult for people in my generation to, 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 to say to the young generations, you know what, you have no hope. There, there mm-hmm. is hope, actually, and, and that's, kind of, that's kind of what... The last few lines of of the article uh, that I wrote, you just read, conveys to the younger generation: there is hope. Thing, there are better days ahead. Don't worry, uh, it'll be fine. Uh, do we not realize this is cyclical? I mean, you go back to, to the turn of the century, last century. I mean, you can see it. Uh, are 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 young people uh, so caught up in what is going on today? They don't see that optimism. I, there's some of that. I mean, based on based on emails I received today, yeah, I can say that. <laughs> but um, I mean, I'm I look at food. Food is my area, and for the last decade or so, uh, the legacy that millions have left is that we uh, were we we've seen many companies uh, being forced to look into sustainability, animal welfare. Uh, We've seen many reformulated products, uh, healthier products, and things like that. And and I'm not saying that this is this was all in vain. In fact, actually, I think the food industry is much stronger as a result. Uh, but cost was never mentioned. I mean, yes, you want better products, but all of these things will come at a price. Canadians have access to uh, one of the f- cheapest food baskets in the world, one of the safest food baskets in the world. And uh, we've been asking uh, from uh, from our industry a lot, and uh, and I think because of higher prices, because of of the hardship that some some of us are going through right now, we may become a little bit more realistic in terms of what we're expecting from from the food industry, both retail and service. Uh, so, are you optimistic that the pessimism won't continue? That um, you know, you were saying in the article that we've got to be realistic, or it will catch up with us. Uh, are you concerned that 
uh, the generation coming in after them won't be as optimistic. I, you know, I've often said that you know, whenever you go, you go through a crisis like this, like a global pandemic or a war that changes the world, shifts it on its axis of sort, if you're caught in the middle, it's very difficult. If you're at the beginning or the end, it's probably a bit easier for you. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but but I, I, you know, when you look at the data, I don't think anyone's immune to what's going on. One way or another, you've been infected by whatever's been happening around the world the last two, three years. I mean, mm. it's, let's face it. And so we got to stick together. And like I said, when it comes to food, uh, I think I think indulgence will be back at some point, uh, <laughs> like it was, say, between 2012 and 2020. It was all about indulgence. We'll, we'll get back to that at some point in a few years from now. But for the time being, it's about survival. You saw the report uh, about uh, about Toronto, one one uh, person in Toronto in ten actually will visit a food bank. Uh, did visit a food bank last year. That, I mean, that's a really just shocking number. And so, and I sit on the board of Second Harvest in Toronto, one of the largest food banks in in, in Canada. So we we do see the traffic. Uh, we we need to continue to support. Uh, food banks as much as possible, but things will improve. Things will get better. And I think it's important for the younger generations to remember that. Uh, have we forgotten about, remember Dave Nickel and the no-name brands and how that was turning everybody on its, uh, everything on its ear, you know, a couple of decades ago. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it'll be celebrating uh, its 40th anniversary in 2024, by the way, Dave Nickel. So uh, the brand has uh, survived, uh, has done very well has offered really uh, a, a valuable, affordable solution to Canadians. And it's not just President's Choice. It's all private labels. In those days, 40 years ago, private labels were uh, frowned upon by Canadians. They just didn't want it. Now, it's almost 20% of all food sales in Canada. And, and it does offer, uh, these, these labels do offer a really good deal for most Canadians. Do the rest, do the other demographics realize what this generation is going through? It sounds like, you know, often in the email you're getting, there's not a lot of sympathy there. Is that because the parents were boomers? <laughs> Blame the boomers. Yeah. That, that well, was yeah. Well. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, the boomers made all the money and, and wanted to give their kids all the best of everything. And they did. And now they're getting pooped on for that. It, it seems odd. Yeah, no, it's. I, I don't want to go into the blaming, uh, blaming uh, generations thing. I, I like I said, I, I, I think the the article was intended to, to, uh, to offer a, a, a somber, um, uh, I guess, evaluation of what's happening right now. Uh, when you look at the data, I mean, we we poll Canadians all the time. Clearly, clearly, millennials are suffering the most. Financial, clearly, because they're most, that's the one group that is most economically active. They have mortgages, they probably have kids at home, Mm -hmm. but under tremendous pressure. And uh, we got to help them as much as we can. I mean, uh, the Gen Zs, it's a mixed bag because a lot of them are still at home. So it's a a little bit more difficult to read the pulse there, but millennials are absolutely being hammered. And like I said, right now it's bad, but in the future, uh, things will get better. They'll they'll become a stronger generation uh, for it. Well said, Dr. Sylvain Charlebaugh with us, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Sylvain, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. 
All right. Take care. Bye-bye. The headline of the Toronto Star is the beer store finished. And then as you dig a little deeper, uh, an announcement coming soon that could end beer case monopolies, uh, beer case sales monopoly. Within the next month, the Ford government is expected to announce it's not renewing the master framework agreement, which prevents anyone but the beer store from selling beer by the case. Uh, obviously, uh, Brewers Retail, now the beer store, uh, majority owners with uh, Molson, Labatt, and Sleemans, which uh, aren't Canadian companies anymore. So what does this mean for the new beer store moving forward? Or is that the end, as uh, some are saying, is there not a path for or a place for the beer store? Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and here now. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing very well. Thank you, Scott. So what is changing here, Ian, and what does that mean for the beer store, in your opinion? Well, what's what this um, unwittingly exposes is something that I and others have talked about for many years. Um, that we have many industries that are oligopolistic, which is the big fancy academic term for saying there's only two or three companies. Think of telecom, uh, think of airlines. And it's been mandated by governments across Canada, federal or provincial. And we have much, much lower productivity than the U.S. And as a consequence, our average income per person is about $20,000 a year per person less in Canada than the U.S., a lot of it is because of our uh, the huge number of protected industries, the lower productivity, and this is Exhibit A. Um, why it was ever set up in the first place is just mystifying to me. It was set up to, let's be very, very clear, everybody, it was set up to exploit consumers. It was the oligopoly was set up for these three large companies to save massive costs to them so they didn't have to distribute it to all the small businesses and mid-sized businesses uh, across the uh, province. And so this is a, a this is a step forward for those who believe in competitive markets who don't like oligopoly, where you only have two or three companies. Think of the airline industry. Think of the cell phone, the te- our cell phone industry, our phone industry. And uh, so this is a very very important step forward. Um, and the a second point nobody's talking about yet. So let me put it out there. Minimum wage increase has gone through. They're very, very high in Canada, very high in Ontario, and they fall almost exclusively on small business. Big businesses don't pay minimum wage. They pay much higher. And so we this is going to give a whole bunch of business, a huge amount of business. All the billions of dollars that went through the brewer's retail or the beer store is now going to end up as sales in every corner confectionery and, yes, some grocery stores uh, across the province. So I think that this is just win, win, win. It's win for small business. It's win for consumers. It's win for competition. And the only losers are these three huge uh, multinationals that aren't even, as the premier said, Canadian companies. So what will the beer store end up being? Will it cease to exist, as this article suggests, or will it just uh, reform, new template? Well, because I, I really don't like governments picking winners and losers. I think it's a terrible, terrible mistake. And again, it's why we have such low productivity and why we uh, our standard of living is lower than the United States. Um, and so I don't want the government to say, beer store, you're out of business. Just remove their monopoly. Do the same thing to the LCBO. And then go out there and compete. Fill your boots. Go to town. Be competitive. If you really are competitive, Bros Retail and LCBO, then you will attract lots of customers into your stores and you will continue to be successful. 
And if the customers stop going to your stores because you're not competitive, well, there you go. Maybe you weren't as competitive as you thought you were, but at least it will be driven by consumers across the province, individual consumers, not governments making these decisions over who's going to win and who's going to lose in the marketplace. And why make those decisions? Why this protected? They will say, as the LCBO says in the name, it's Liquor Control Board. They're trying to control things, control distribution to stop abuse. Yeah. Is that not yeah, valid anymore? So far, it's all my adult life. And it's, it's just so painfully, I mean, I think it's just dishonest. I've traveled to 44 of 50 states in the U.S. over my lifetime on road trips, and there is no liquor control board or brewer's retail anywhere in the United States. I've also traveled to just about every country in Western Europe, except for a few small, the Scandinavian countries. They don't do this. I mean, you can go into any corner store and grocery store and, and, and buy your wine or your beer. So uh, and, and there's no suggestion that, you know, everybody in Europe has become alcoholic. Or everyone in the United States has become alcoholic and there's massive uh, alcohol abuse. There's no comparative data that shows that Canada is much you know, healthier, if you want to put it that way, than, than those countries that have decentralized uh, the, the, the sale and distribution of alcohol, whether beer or wine. Um, this is just another protectionist a racket or excuse by people trying to protect their monopoly. Dr. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Changes coming to the beer store and more open uh, competition. And uh, the changes, will, will there be changes coming to the beer store as a result of this? Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, thank you. Thanks very much. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we've uh, heard lots of chatter about heat pumps recently, uh, no doubt because the federal government is offering some incentives. Uh, but how do they actually work, and do they work? Uh, they certainly aren't new. Uh, we've heard about them in the past, but uh, now seem to be getting more attention. Let's bring in Sarah Riddle, uh, Policy Research Associate, Clean Heat with Efficiency Canada, and an Energy and Policy Tracker with the Sustainable Energy Research Centre at Carleton University, and here now. Sarah, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. So, Sarah, um, first of all, uh, give us a basic layperson's uh, analogy of how these work, and, and, and then we'll discuss why it's coming up now. But basically, what do they do? Yeah, absolutely. Heat pumps use the same basic technology as an air conditioner, but they're better since they can work in, rebo- in reverse to both heat and cool buildings. And they're incredibly efficient since they move heat rather than having to burn fuel to produce it like a, a furnace would. So they can be 200 to 540% efficient compared to only about the 80 to 95% efficient of furnaces and boilers. So you can save a ton of money using one. Do they need to be uh, on an electric system in order to be their most effective? In other words, do they work well with like a natural gas or, or something like that? Yeah, so the, the most efficient heat pumps are the ones that are fully electric. But you can absolutely have a hybrid system. Lots of people, um, if they're not looking to fully electrify their home yet, or if they just have an old um, air conditioner, you can just replace your air conditioner and still have the furnace as a, a backup. And that can also be a great solution. Why are they getting so much attention now? Because they've been around for a while. And, you know, again, if so great, why, why, are, we, why are we having the discussion now? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so older generations of heat pumps in Canada were better suited to a more temperate climate. So what you'd see kind of in Vancouver, Halifax, which kind of gave them a bad reputation for the kind of the middle of Canada. But um, modern heat pumps are just excellent. They can maintain capacity and heat during very cold outdoor temperatures since there have been just massive improvements to the technology that have made them extremely efficient and work in very cold temperatures. And um, they... They are very efficient and they, they can save you a lot of money. Uh, price obviously seems to be the biggest obstacle. How come they are so expensive? Yeah, um, they, they they do seem expensive when you're just comparing them to a furnace. But um, heat pumps are great in that they can replace both your furnace and your air conditioner. So replacing both of them and also with a lot of the, the rebates and grants that are available, the, the price can be quite comparable. What are we missing on this, Sarah? Because obviously, if they were as great as everybody says they were, they'd be taking, they'd be flying off the shelves. So, what are we not? What are the? What's the downside? Yeah, I think an issue is that around eighty percent of HVAC replacements are emergency replacements. Um, your furnace and your air conditioner aren't something that most people are thinking about all the time when they're going to fail. What their um, plan is or their replacement when it is. And I think people do need to, uh, we need as a society to start thinking ahead a bit more since with heat pumps, since they are slightly less um, popular right now than furnaces and air conditioners, that the one that might be best suited for your home and budget might not always be in stock with your preferred installer. So it is something that if your furnace fails in the middle of the night in the winter, um, that if you haven't planned ahead with the heat pump that you're most likely to just get exactly what you had before, uh, which is really unfortunate since that can lock you into um, the uh, very volatile natural gas prices that we've seen last year. Natural gas prices were up 70%, for example, whereas electricity on average in Canada only increases by about one or 2% a year. So electricity state prices are much more stable. They're more regulated, whereas the natural gas prices are really influenced by the international markets that we have little control over. Um, so it's really important to plan ahead. And because whatever you install now is probably still going to be in your home in 2040. So it should be a, a bigger decision that. Has so that being said, those, so that being said, Sarah, those that replace old furnaces, uh, obviously is a smaller percentage than those that are buying new homes. Uh, we obviously have a housing crisis in Canada right now. Everybody's talking about building more homes. Uh, why would the, these not be part of new builds um, if this is the way of the future? Yeah, that's a great question. There, um, it's not currently part of building codes, but that would be. Uh, an excellent step for there is a, a net zero building code that's the uh, step five in British Columbia, for example. And yes, they would they would be a great part of building codes. And even in um, in BC in 2030, there will be a 100 percent efficiency for uh, heating homes and also for um, for water heating. So that's really exciting. It is moving that way in a lot of places. At the end of the day, Sarah, the reason this isn't working or hasn't caught on unless it's heavily subsidized is because it's just not practical. Are we making any any gains there? I mean, obviously, it's just not the most efficient. It may be the most environmentally efficient way to to heat your home or cool your home, but it's 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 obviously not the most efficient. It's not the most valuable in that sense, unless you're just looking through a you know a climate change lens. Um, is there anything in the future that is going to make these more practical? 
Yeah, so actually, even right now in um, Hamilton, for example, um, if you are uh, electrify your home, you're able to, if you cut off the natural gas service, you will be saving about $300 a year from that, which is really exciting. And also heat pumps are a great solution in Hamilton, since I think people uh, think because of the wind chill that it's it's really cold here. But I looked at the last five years of data, so 2018 to 2022, and the air temperature in Hamilton didn't drop um, to negative 30 or lower a single time. Uh, so cold climate air source heat pumps are a great solution here, um, especially because we have the time of use pricing in Ontario. Um, Heat pumps need to work the most, of course, at night when um, nighttime temperatures drop the lowest. And so they can take advantage of the really low uh, time of use pricing that we have overnight. So they're actually a really great solution in Ontario since they're so efficient. Uh, there are the savings there compared to natural gas. Do you think Ontarians or Canadians feel comfortable in completely electrifying their home? I mean, it was just the last government where electricity prices were absolutely through the roof. So again, it depends on the government of the day on, on how stable the electricity prices are. So electricity prices in general in Canada are very stable, especially compared to natural gas prices. And um, with a heat pump, you can take advantage of those ultra low overnight uh, rates, which are um, very valuable. I I think, uh, of course, changing people's perceptions over time is um, can be a process. But I think uh, I think Canadians are smart and they can they can see that it is the way of the future. In Norway, for example, over sixty percent of homes are heated by heat pumps, and they're uh, on average even colder than Canada. So I think um, policy. It um, needs to catch up, but I, I think it, they really, heat pumps are the way of the future. All right, Sarah Riddle with us, Policy Research Associate, Clean Heat and with Efficiency Canada and Energy and Policy Tracker with Sustainable Energy Research Center, Carleton University. Sarah, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks. Well, we have talked about uh, foreign interference for a, uh, a great length of time, uh, whether it's uh, Chinese Communist Party election interference, allegations of, what have you. Uh, now, Global News has uncovered stories of people connected to Iran's regime operating in Canada in a similar way to how uh, Xi Jinping's Chinese Communist Party operatives intimidate and interfere with Canadian citizens. To talk more about all of this, Phil Gursky with us, President of Boreal. Alice Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, and with us now. Phil, thank you for your time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon, Scott. So whenever we're talking about this sort of thing of late, uh, Phil, it's always been the Chinese Communist Party, allegations of election interference. That started several months ago. Now we're in, of course, we've heard over time, uh, Russia, other countries, nations uh, interfering as well. Now Iran. What are your thoughts and how does Iran interfere in Canada's business? It actually goes back a very long way, Scott. Uh, as I discussed in my book, The Peaceable Kingdom, which looks at terrorism in Canada dating back to Confederation, the Iranians would target dissidents here way back in the 1980s. In fact, there was a plot to assassinate Salman Rushdie's wife. You remember the old Satanic mm. Versus controversy yep. back then? Yep. Um, well, his wife was in Toronto at a speaking event, and they sent an assassin who luckily was interdicted and, and sent back to Iran. The regime, which has been in, in power since the late 70s, does not brook uh, di uh, any kind of dissent, any kind of opposition, and that extends to diasporas, including here in Canada. 
So uh, uh, citizens, uh, former citizens of, uh, citizens of Iran being harassed here, uh, very similar to the Chinese Communist Party allegations? In some ways, yes. What, what they would do, of course, is they would say, you know, shut your trap or your family back home. If you have family back home, might find themselves in an uncomfortable situation. That's what, certainly what China did. And my, my understanding of what I've read in open source based on uh, Iranian Canadians is that similar actions being taken? If you criticize the regime back home, uh, maybe some of your relatives uh, may be harmed, and so you might want to be, consider very carefully what you tell the Canadian media. Uh, any bearing here on the Israeli-Hamas war? Well, there could be. Um, I think it goes beyond that. To be perfectly honest, Scott, like I said, the Iranian regime's inability to accept any views but their own is a very, very old phenomenon. It's it's at least 40 years since Ayatollah Khomeini and, and the Ayatollahs took over in 1979. I can't, dis, I can't discount the possibility that it's tied to the, the war with Hamas. Of course, Iran is a major supporter of Hamas. Mm-hmm. But I'm guessing in this case, it's more just a run-of-the-mill. Um, they just don't like when people say bad things about the regime. Uh, has the war changed any of that? Uh, we're seeing lots of protests on both sides. Are they fueling or or adding to that in any way? There's no question that there's a lot of very emotional content on both sides. You, you've seen a rise in anti-Semitism here in Canada and, and in Europe, for example. A lot of concerns about attacks on synagogues where people will draw a one-to-one relationship between the Israeli Defense Forces, the State of Israel, and any Jews living abroad. We've also seen some people, um, you know, apparently some rise in Islamophobia, although I think anti-Semitism is much more important. Uh, There's no question that a lot of people are are very upset. They're very angry. They're angry at what Hamas did on October the 7th. They're angry at Israeli Defense Forces response in Gaza with the unfortunate killing of civilians. And so, you know, until the situation gets regulated or or there's a a bit of a break, I think you're going to see these tempers uh, continue to rise. Uh, obviously, uh, here we're seeing, uh, as we are around the world, protests uh, for both sides, as you said, very heated, very emotional. For me, it, it, it's not about uh, the Palestinians versus Israelis, religion versus the other religion, left versus right. It's about uh, democracy and freedom versus authoritarianism and, and terrorism. Is there a way for Palestinian people, the innocent ones who are being victimized here, caught in the middle, is it possible for them to separate themselves from Hamas, from Iran, or are they just too closely knit? Well, they certainly are closely knit in the Gaza Strip. So Hamas has been the government of Gaza for several decades now. They did get voted in by the Palestinians there, who were simply sick and tired of the Palestinian Authority. Remember, under Yasser Arafat, mm-hmm. they, saw, they saw Hamas as some kind of an alternative, or Hamas as you're well aware, Scott, is a listed terrorist entity here in Canada and in many regimes and, and jurisdictions around the world. I, I'm with you. The average Palestinian is not a Hamas supporter. The average Palestinian doesn't want Iran mucking about. The unfortunate reality, as I'm sure you're aware, is that people get tired with the same brush. And this is why you're seeing attacks uh, on both sides, where people are simply lobbying everyone together in, in, into the same boat. It's unfortunate because, again, in most situations, the vast majority of people just want you know to live safely, them and their, fa- them and their families, and they want none of this political garbage to, to surround them. But unfortunately, uh, they get caught up in the emotion that's happening right now. 
Uh, your thoughts on what you're seeing? Obviously, uh, Israel taking a lot of criticism for the amount of force that they're using. Uh, we're seeing lots of situations around hospitals and such where we also hear that Hamas is using Palestinians as human shields, that a lot of these tunnels and such come to a, a hub underneath th- these sorts of facilities like hospitals and such. Um, what about intelligence telling us that? I mean, it, it, does more of that information need to get out of, of who is where? I think so. And you raise a really good point, Scott. We've known for a long time that A, Hamas doesn't really care about the Palestinians. They're a terrorist group. They have been using schools and hospitals and playgrounds and mosques and all kinds of things for decades to put men and material to to, uh, help support terrorist attacks. And yet that seems to be lost in the mix right now. I'm with you. Look, civilian casualties are terrible. But what do you do when when the terrorists that carried out a heinous attack in which 1,200 people died, which is more proportionally than the Americans lost on 9-11, what do you want Israel to do? If Hamas is using a hospital uh, as as a protective zone, um, I I guess you could say I'm not going to hit a hospital out of humanitarian reasons, but then Hamas gets away with it and plans another attack a year or two years down the road. So I, I think from an Israeli perspective, no reaction is an impossibility. Uh, I think they're doing things as carefully as they can, but it gets really tough when the terrorists, uh, essentially cowards, um, use human shields or hide behind civilians that want nothing to do with this kind of situation. Do you think Palestinians will question or more question if Hamas is looking after their best interests, if Hamas is protecting them, helping them? I sincerely hope so. And I would. what I'd really like to see, Scott, is the rest of the Arab and Muslim world ask the same questions. Unfortunately, what's the alternative to Hamas? The Palestinian Authority has even less credibility. And mm-hmm. so, you know, Israel doesn't want to take over Gaza trip. They, they, they ran Gaza for decades and it didn't go anywhere. I think the Palestinians, Palestinians are, are stuck between a rock and a hard place where there's no obvious leader to take over. Um, Hamas has been running the show for the better part of two decades. I don't know. Who do you choose when there's no one to choose from? I, you can set up for your rights and everything, but at the end of the day, you have to have someone that runs the power system and runs the food system and things like that. So... Uh, my heart goes out to the Palestinians. They simply, simply don't have a choice in this matter. What about the stability for the rest of the world regarding uh, this issue? Obviously, there's this. There's what's going on in Ukraine with the Russian invasion of. What does this do to the world and stability? It certainly puts us under a lot of pressure. You mentioned Ukraine. Of course, there's Chinese designs on Taiwan. We've heard a lot about that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Chinese harassment of vessels in the South China Sea, which it claims is territorial waters, which is complete crap by you know, under international law. My, my fear, Scott, is that we've got too many balls in the air simultaneously. And I don't think we do well to try to, to devote enough attention and resources to any one issue at any given time. And when you have multiple things happen, um, you either tune out or you're just kind of you put in stopgap solutions of things. And my fear is that some of this might get out of control. Um, maybe China will use this as a diversion to invade Taiwan. Maybe, you know, we've already heard that Russia's going to step up your tax in Ukraine as winter approaches. Uh, it's not a good situation. And I guess we just keep our fingers crossed that, that things don't get much worse than they are because they're pretty bad right now, my friend. Bill Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, globalist uncovered stories, people connected with the Iran regime operating in Canada and trying to influence people here. Phil, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. I will, sir. You too. Thank you. Scott Radley show coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Buenos nachos. I see you're covering the beer store. Uh, the headline in the Toronto Star. Beer store is finished. 
I'm not sure it's finished, but uh, clearly they're changing the amount of control uh, that it has in opening up uh, other options and such. Your thoughts as you talk about this tonight? Well, let me ask you this. So this this is one of those things that has always been around, presumably because the government can do it better. And whether or not that's true is, you know, everyone can have that debate. But I, I do wonder, Scott, if this is not the beginning of a bunch of things like this, because, you know, uh, with, with the, with the amount of money that people in the public sector are getting relative to the private sector with increases and with everybody seemingly who works for government getting raise after raise after raise. And I'm not, look, that's, that's not the debate here. It's just, I wonder if a lot of governments are going to start looking at things like the beer store or the LCBO or whatever else and saying, we can privatize this and save ourselves a whole lot of money and have the same services. Uh, or even better services. I mean, again, why not just let the market decide again? You know, I came back from Europe. It's like you can get it anywhere. What's the problem? We seem to be caught up that this, you know, as you said, only the government can distribute this, uh, the LCBO, LCBO, it's about controlling, but they're not the, you know, the only industry where they've kind of got a, a monopoly or all, an, an agopoly on, on what, you know, they can buy or who can buy and sell these products, whether it's the telephone industry, cell phone industry, whether it's uh, alcohol, whether it's uh, airlines, what have you. I mean, um, I don't know. I just think the argument in a post-pandemic world is becoming weaker and weaker. And look, we can have a discussion all day long about who can do it better or who does it worse, or is it, you know, a good idea or not. But the reality is that if governments are facing public sector, public service unions, that are looking for wage increases that exceed those of what people in the private sector are getting. And the government can say, we can still collect taxes on these things, but we now don't have to look after all the other stuff that goes yeah. with it. I, I, I do wonder if some of these public sector unions are going to leverage themselves right out of business in some mm. of these cases, because there are some of these areas where, look, in the States, I'm, you, you can drive down in the Southern States and, you know, they got liquor stores like liquor and guns. I mean, we don't need that necessarily, but no, you, but you have, you don't have an LCBO, you have private liquor stores in a lot of places and people can get their booze or not get their booze. And, and in a lot of cases, there seems to be more selection. In a lot of cases, there's less selection, but it, regardless, I just, this whole thing with the amount that governments owe now, with the amount of money, with people struggling, with inflation, with taxes, I just wonder if this is the first step towards an awful lot of privatization in non-essential. I don't see privatization in policing or things like that, but yeah. in a lot of non-essential things, I could very easily see this being the first step. Interesting point. All right. Can't let you go without asking you about the death of hockey uh, star Adam Johnson mm. played with the Penguins, obviously lost his life in the UK playing there, slashed to the neck. We know the story. Uh, they're considering laying a charge on this. He's what been you, arrested, what you, yeah. Yeah. What the are guy. your thoughts? Well, we're going to talk about this uh, with a lawyer in the second hour of the show because it is a truly fascinating story. And the yeah. reason is, and what I'm going to ask, I have no idea how you could possibly get a conviction on this. And saying that, I've watched the clip now a bunch of times and it looks really weird. Something is not looking right, or at least it's so unusual that I've never in all the years I've watched hockey in a million games, I've never seen 
that happen before where, and not just someone getting their throat cut, but the position the other player was in. I haven't seen that mm-hmm. before. It looks weird, but I don't know how you possibly can convince a jury that either he did it intentionally, which I don't think is the position they're taking. I think they're taking it that he was so reckless. And so it's manslaughter. He is so reckless and so careless that you could have known that such a thing could lead to huge problems. But like, how, how do you, how do you determine that when you're going full speed on the ice, whether he did it intentionally or not, I have no idea, but it just, I don't know how you possibly get a conviction. Um, I haven't seen the clip. You have. Does it look like something that somebody could do, would do just out of control, legs flailing everywhere or somebody who ends a check in some sort of high foot thing? It looks weird because it looks like a kick. Now, the problem is the video is not 4k crystal clear. It's from a distance. It's from behind and it's really hard on the video to see if the player who had his foot up, his skate up, it's really hard to see if he was contacted and knocked off balance or if this was him putting himself in this position. But again, unless someone else in that arena was taking much higher quality video or has something that shows something different, I don't see how this leads to a conviction. Now, that said, the other interesting part about this, Scott, is Remember how many years ago, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when Bertuzzi, Todd Bertuzzi with the whole Steve Moore thing in the Colorado Mm -hmm. Vancouver game, how long after that did it take for a charge to be laid? It was, it had to be eight months or a year, at least by my recollection. And here it's two weeks, two and a half weeks. And I, I wonder really in England, they don't have the hockey culture that we have. I wonder if they look mm. at this as non pe- people who have not seen a ton of hockey and go, that's re- what did he do? That's way out of line. And I wonder if, I wonder if there's something going on where if, if this was something that happened in a soccer match, if it might've been, they wouldn't have skates on obviously, but if it was ha- something happened there, if they would see it differently, but as n- unfamiliar mm. people yeah, to hockey, to if it's sport. different, I don't know. All right. It's all happening after the six o'clock news. Sure Join the Scott Radley show and you can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a good one. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer to have the last word this one via email from steve if a carbon tax was designed to reduce carbon why haven't we been able to measure any reduction of carbon in the past several years of the imposed carbon tax how bad is carbon where are we now how much further must we go is it science or political science as ever steve keep right except to pass (laughs) 